This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a minute, you'll hear my conversation with Saul Trujillo, a man who's had a remarkable career, heading up major corporations not only in America, but also in Australia and France. He headed up the telecommunications giant in France called Orange, Telstra, the Australian communications giant. So with that kind of career, he's now focusing on what's happening to the Latino community in the U.S. and his news is good. This is a huge success story, but most people don't know it. But first, when I take a look at this week, here's what's ahead. Well, it's no secret. The big news this week is going to be, what does the Federal Reserve do on interest rates? They meet in the middle of this week. I think they'll reduce them by what they call 25 basis points, one quarter of 1%. There's been a hullabaloo this past week about the European Central Bank going for negative interest rates, buying bonds again by the tens of billions, what they call quantitative easing. This whole focus on central banks trying to manipulate economies is preposterous. They influence it, but they don't influence it in a positive way. These negative interest rates hurt credit markets, especially for small businesses. But nonetheless, every country is reducing interest rates. The Israelis have done it. Turkey's done it. There's chatter about a currency war. The real problems for these economies, especially in Europe and Japan, are structural. The U.S., for instance, has had low tax cuts. I mean, good tax cuts, cutting tax rates for corporations, reducing the tax burden on most individuals. Deregulation has helped as well, so we have a good positive growth rate. But overhanging it, of course, is trade. If we get a trade deal, which I'll touch on in a second, then the U.S. economy will not only do better, but so will the stock market. But you look at Europe, burdened with huge taxes, labor laws, which make it impossible to hire and fire at will. That kind of flexibility is essential to get the kind of job creation we have here in the U.S. You look at Europe, they have payroll taxes, gargantuan rates. Here in the U.S., our payroll tax, what they call FICA, is about 15%. In Europe, it's 40%, 50%. No wonder their economies don't work. And then to add to that, value-added taxes, which are super sales taxes. There's hardly an entity in the U.S. with a handful of exceptions that have 10% sales taxes, but 20, 25% is the norm in Europe. And they also have high income tax rates, and they wonder why they're so sluggish. Same is true of Japan. So, a lot of hullabaloo about, a lot of discussion about the Federal Reserve and these other central banks, but they miss the main point. You don't have these structural reforms, you're going to stagnate no matter how much money these entities try to print. It ain't going to work. Now, on the trade front, the administration has sort of been making hints that they will accept a trade deal with China that is not as comprehensive as what they seem to be demanding in the past. Why is the White House doing this? Well, it may be the realization that business investment has been weak, and eventually that reflects itself in a slow economy going into 2020, which is an election year. They don't want that. So get these trade uncertainties out of the way, business investment picks up, and that'll guarantee a healthy economy going into the November elections in 2020. This week, too, on Wednesday, the 18th, we'll get housing starts and building permits. That sector of the economy, housing has been rather weak. We'll see if there's any pickup there. But the big focus, central banks and trade. If we get good news on the trade front, doesn't matter what central banks do, at least here in the U.S., we'll chug forward. 
Our special guest this morning is Saul Trujillo. His inspiring story would have, I think, really found favor with Abraham Lincoln, coming up with a very little and achieving great success. And we're here to discuss today the great untold or certainly undertold story of the surging economic success of the Latino community in the U.S. Saul, thank you for joining us. Steve, it's a great pleasure to see you again. Let's uh, get a little bit of background about our guest today. Your parents, you say, after World War II, made uh, their way up there from New Mexico. How old were they when they got married? They were very young, Steve. Uh, They were basically 16 and 14, and uh, they were making their way to look for work. And uh, they had uh, three children. You were the youngest? Yes, I was. And... uh, Growing up, among other things, uh, your father had a great voice, and so you, uh, in addition to your business background, you have a musical background as well. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. Uh, yes, my father uh, actually started a mariachi group in Cheyenne, Wyoming, believe it or not. It was called Salt Trujillo and his mariachi brass, and he was a singer. He played guitar, played violin, and I used to, uh, when I was young, I used to play the trumpet. Do you still play it? Uh, actually, no, until I go visit him. And he's 92 years old today. He still sings. He still does all that sort of thing. And I'll take out the trumpet and we'll play a little, but my lip doesn't last very long. <laughs> yes. My brothers, I have three brothers, and we grew up learning to play the bagpipes uh-huh. and uh, in a manner of speaking. And it's only on special occasions with lubrication that those things <laughs> come out today. So you went to a high school in Cheyenne. And then you went to the University of Wyoming, where, as you say, you majored in making money. (laughs) Tell us what you learned there. You got your undergraduate degree, and you also got an MBA. I did, and and the real story is that as I was growing up, we didn't have a lot. But I always looked at the kids that did, and I looked at where their parents essentially worked. and, uh, And I decided after seeing that most of the kids that had stuff, their parents were in business. So I decided to major in business. And uh, that's in spite of, uh, you know, at nighttime meals and dinners, we didn't talk about budget deficits and and uh, how the economy was doing. It was more day-to-day life kinds of issues. So when I went to school, I decided to major in business, got my MBA uh, and BS, and learned a lot. It was one of the best investments I think I've ever made. Well, no surprise growing up back in those days, uh, you uh, probably had your share of discrimination. But you also said uh, you learned to work 10 times as hard as anyone else. Well, you know, early in the career, I was actually the very first person in my family to get a college degree. But also then when I went to work with what was then the largest company in the world, AT&T. Yes, this is the old AT&T, not the company today. Uh, The old AT&T before the breakup of 1982 was, as the president would say, huge and (laughs) a legal monopoly and the company that actually worked. And to answer your question, I was not hired. Fortunately, I was hired in 1974 after the AT&T company had signed a consent decree with the federal government about hiring people that didn't all look alike. And so I was hired and ultimately became the chairman and CEO of the company. You, uh, it's quite something. You went to uh, what they used to call Mountain Bell and you became, uh, at the age of 32 in New Mexico with Mountain Bell, the youngest officer in AT&T history. That's correct. And, and part of that was what you just asked me a minute ago, which is 
in those days, somebody like me, with the hair that I had and the way that I dressed and the last name I had, you had to be five or ten times better than others in terms of performance. And I say that always around performance because I'm a, I'm a determined, you know, performance-based leader. Then in the late 1990s, when you're in your mid-40s, you achieve another first. You become the first native-born Latino to serve as CEO of a large company, one of the 150 largest companies in the country, the old U.S. West, which eventually merged into Quest. That's correct. You've also had uh, various directorships, uh, Target, uh, Bank of America, and the like. But in recent times, you've also uh, become involved in helping the Latino community in the U.S. move forward. It's moving forward uh, very impressively. You're founder of the Latino Business Action Network. You've been involved with the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative, Latitude, where you uh, bring people together from various backgrounds. So uh, let's get into uh, this extraordinary success story. What I don't think people realize is that Latinos in the U.S. are more likely to start a business than any other group in the United States, more than whites, more than Asians, more than African Americans. In 2012, there are 3.3 million Hispanic-owned businesses in the U.S. Today, it's estimated that is about 5 million. Where did this entrepreneurship come that uh, people really don't know about outside of the community? Well, that, that, that's an interesting point. And part of my motivation for doing some of the nonprofit things that I'm doing in that space has been when I was living in Australia and I was watching my country. And my family's only been here since the 1500s. So watching my country and having these conversations about walls and deportations and things like that. And I well, said, as, as one actress said, my background didn't change, but the borders did. <laughs> well, well, in part that's true, but I, but I mean just economically speaking. We've been so capitalistic, so market-based as a nation that all of a sudden we're imposing theorems and actions that made no sense to me as, as a market-based capitalist. I am a capitalist. I'm proud of being a capitalist, proud of being market-based. So I saw what was happening with all this kind of stuff, which would stunt growth in the United States of America. And stunt growth in particular, in my opinion, and I had some data, but not all the data I have today, that said this is the most productive entrepreneurial cohort of people that we have in our country. And we're, we're looking to the South as a negative as opposed to the positive. So I came back when I returned from, from Australia. Which is around 2009, 2010. Yes, and sat down with some leaders around the country and said, what's been going on? I'd been out of the country over in Europe and then over in Asia Pac and had some conversations and decided that one of the issues that we had in our country was that the brand of Latinos, U.S. Hispanics, was being damaged by mythology. Not facts well, you make and data. An interesting point. A uh, very strange thing happened. As you've pointed out, back in the 50s, 60s, in the popular culture, Desi Arnaz and others, Latinos were portrayed very benignly, very positively. But in the last 20 years, it's all gang members fighting. Uh, if it's not violence, you're either a maid or a gardener. What happened here? Well, we did some actual analysis. I'm a believer in the Deming method of the five whys, and you know, you get down to root cause kinds of issues. And so we did some research, and we saw that at that point in time, the 2010, 2012 period, there were about 10 billion impressions made a week by entertainment media 
in terms of who we are or are not, how we get portrayed, or whether we're even portrayed. And in this case, with the U.S. Latino cohort, basically 90% of all portrayals were as gangbangers, drug dealers, you know, negative portrayals. And the 10% that were positive were Maria, the maid or nanny, and Pablo, the jardinero, the gardener. And that was basically it. And that's database, not perception, data, actual surveys, etc. So what's happened in the last 20 years or so was that the entertainment media started these portrayals because we ran out of, you know, the Russians as the bad people or the African-Americans as the only bad people. And so, you know, in, in drama and TV, you need so-called good guys and the so-called bad people. And there always has to be that mixture and so guess who became that? And the problem is, is that every cohort has good people and bad people. But when you center it on one and or when you center it on one and there's only bad people and bad portrayals, that tends to create perceptions that that become mythology and not based on facts or data. So brands are a reflection of how you want to be perceived. And they should be driven by real experience, real facts, real data. And that's what my motivation has been. Because as an American, I am concerned about our growth today. I'm concerned about our growth going forward. And there is one cohort that is so critical to our nation's growth for all people, not just some, but for everyone. And that is the Latino cohort. And this gets to some uh, very interesting statistics that you and others have put together. Uh, the Latino workforce in the U.S. is expanding three times as fast as the rest of the population. They accounted for 70% of the growth in the workforce through this decade of the 2010s. Latino median household income is growing faster than the rest of the country. It's over 50,000. will soon reach the uh, national, exceed the national average. The poverty rate Despite all the focus on the border and people streaming across, the poverty rate in the Latino cohort in the U.S. is now the lowest since the number was first published in 1972. The number of Latino millionaires has doubled in the last three years. And then, as you point out, in terms of population, it's about roughly 58 million, including 4 million Puerto Ricans. 2060, it's going to go perhaps 110, 120 million from 17% to about 30, 33%. And as you point out, please discuss, this not only means do you have a growing population here, but the earnings years of these young people coming to their prime earning years gives a double wallop. You have the youth, you have the growing income, and the growing numbers. Walk us through that. It's an exciting story. Well, it really is. And again, I wish every American heard this, including the president, who I think is so far off base relative to some of the policies. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm a market-based person. So the numbers are the 60, let's call it rounded to 60 million. And if you look at that 60 million and you go back to the 5 million businesses that are owned by Hispanics or Latinos, and let's just say you took two people, two children per household on top of two parents. You divide four into 60, you get 15 million. You divide five into 15. And you'd say almost one out of three households own a business. Talk about an entrepreneurship class of people. And they're creating jobs, self-employing and creating jobs. And we have all that data, which I won't get into. But back to the numbers, 
the average age of the Latino cohort is 28. That's everybody included. And by the way, the U.S. average is 38, which in the world of demography is enormous. means we're aging, but we have this youthful cohort coming along. Exactly. And it, within the Latino cohort, two-thirds of the Latinos are native-born. Okay? They're citizens. They're no different than anybody else. The average age there is almost 18. And the single largest age cohort, single year, is eight years old. So we look like India, like Malaysia, like Indonesia, like Nigeria, where you have really young populations that are growing their economies because of their youth. And people, to your point about wages, incomes are growing faster versus any other cohort. And there was a study done out of census data from 2005 to 2015 that 29% of all real income growth in the United States of America was driven by this cohort, okay? Has nothing to do with Trump, has nothing to do with tax cuts, has nothing to do with anything. This wave, this tsunami of growth in our economy is happening because of what we have had prior policies, prior thinking about us as an immigrant nation. And no other developed nation in the world has this kind of dynamism built into their economies. No, I mean, you know, today I, I kind of smile whenever I hear this statement that says, well, our economy is doing so good because of a low unemployment rate. Well, I'm a believer that I always well, By look, the way, the Latino unemployment rates that are record low. <laughs> well, well, but that's been happening now for two decades. But here's my point. If we think of the beacon of our economy as unemployment rate and we think that that's good because it's low – then I'd say, let's go to Japan and say, gee, they must have a terrific economy because it's 2.3%. What the punchline of my statement is, is we have to look at labor force growth rates. And if we don't look at that and we don't pay attention to the fact that in 2018, we hit a 0.5% labor force growth rate, that is a sign of not a healthy economy because we need more and more. Our base keeps on getting bigger. So Japan's becoming a nursing home, and we've got this dynamic cohort coming And along. we're starting to follow that lead with the current policies, because immigration has been our lifeline. You know, it's the law of business, right? If my base is big and it gets bigger every year, that means I have to add more volume every single year. Well, this plays into uh, what is unique about the United States is uh, groups in the past who are seen as, oh, a drain. They can't do anything. They're not like us. Uh, Whether well, it was hard to believe Germans, Ben Franklin was worried about the Germans, the Irish, then the Poles and the Italians and others from Eastern, the Jews from Eastern Europe and how they're going to fit in. And uh, by golly, they all surge ahead if given the opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, you, you made a statement, as you referred to uh, in this uh, meeting a few months ago, that says, you know, in this case, you were referring to the Hispanics in the U.S. and being the Calvary already coming over the hill. That's how we should think about these waves of people that are coming as entrepreneurs, coming as people that are pursuing the American dream, taking those values and making them real, not lazily looking at them but actually living them. And that's what's happening with this cohort in particular because we, we now have all kinds of data, Steve, to show all Americans that 
we should be celebrating this, not worrying about it. We should be celebrating it for our kids and for our grandkids because this is the health. This is the sign of health. If the people dream don't works. Want, yeah, exactly. Because if people don't want to come here, what does that say? We're not, in trouble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, one of the challenges for any entrepreneur and certainly for the Latino cohort is access to capital. And uh, one of the things uh, you've been working on and others have been working on is uh, learning how to access that capital. I mean, you have some banks, Bank of America, I think Wells Fargo and some others are advertising in the Latino community. But uh, people have to learn about how you present cash flows and the like. Well, what's being done to uh, help get access not just to your own capital but to uh, more traditional sources of capital to get real growth? Well, that is such an important question because this entrepreneurship class is doing, I guess what I would call, very unique work in terms of creating businesses. But when we studied how they do once they're up and running, they don't do as well as, the let's call it, the general population of businesses. So then, again, back to the five whys, we, we start digging down. And obviously for all businesses, access to capital is important. And everybody starts with money out of their pockets, friends and family. I don't care who, what cohort you belong to. Everybody starts, mostly starts that way. But what's happened now that we have the data is that it's very clear that large banks have not invested in this cohort at a dramatically lower rate than even the African-American cohort, which is lower than, than the general population. Then in particular, you also look at what I would call angel investors, and that doesn't just mean tech. I mean, I, I've lived in several cities in the U.S., and I've lived in those communities, and I've seen, you know, when somebody has a business idea, they can go around the community, get investors to help support them. If you want to open up a dry cleaning store across Denver or across the state of Colorado or whatever, you know, people will invest, and you give them equity and all that. So, so the idea of the next layers of capital so you have friends and family, self. Then above that, you have angel-like investors. And then above that, you have banks because you have to have some sort of credit history, et cetera. And then above that, you can have VCs. And there are VCs in many different sectors, food, tech, et cetera. And then obviously PEs. Well, if you look at the participation rates in any of those layers, Latinos are basically at the bottom. And so... For the first time in my life, Steve, I've said this at least three times so far. I'm a capitalist. I believe in markets. For the first time in my life, I've not seen capital follow where growth is. And so we have to figure that out. And part of that is putting the spotlight on this cohort. If you want growth, here's where you look for it. You know, because it's the same way in employees and all that where people say, well, we got to build a pipeline. And you say, well, there's a big pipeline over here. It's just not over the same places that you used to look, right? And in, in the case of entrepreneurs and, and people that need capital, there has to be more spotlight put on that with Latino cohort because they're so prolific, so prolific that, you know, people are missing out on big investing opportunities. Well, this is where uh, perception obviously hurts as well. Uh, the word hasn't gotten out. Uh, this, this is something you ought to give an extra special look at. Uh, one of the things, uh, for example, is uh, credit scores. 
Many of them use their own personal ones, whereas in a business, you try to use your business credit score. Yours may not be so good if business is paying its bills, and well, then uh, they say, okay, that's good. Is there being more done to uh, help educate these entrepreneurs about business plans and things to uh, when you go into that bank, you can help improve the approval rate to break that barrier? Small businesses, the big barrier is the $1 million revenue barrier. The answer is yes, and that's what we did at, at the Stanford program was to create an actual educational program where people can go through. It's like a mini MBA program that, that lasts over a few months, and you ultimately at the end get a certificate you know, with the Stanford brand on it. But they, it's a rigorous, very rigorous program so that even businesses that have a million dollars in revenue or $5 million, they're going through it and they're writing back saying, this has helped me so much in my business planning and my, in my interactions with banks and maybe investors and that sort of thing. But the other thing, Steve, that this is on the, the personal side of people is that one of the things that has been a limiter has been people's willingness to give up equity. Ah, uh, control. Uh, and so, you know, if I give up 10% or 20% or 40% of my equity, then that means I'm not in control. And the answer is, yes, you still are. But now you have cash that actually doesn't cost you anything in the near term. And it's, I always like to explain to people, 100% of nothing is nothing. But, you know, 60% or 51% of a lot is a lot, right? It's a simple notion but somehow that's something, you know, just the pride of ownership. It's my business. It's, you know, for my family, for my whatever. And that's been a big deal. So we're trying to help that through the program. Well, you uh, point out that uh, Hispanics are not being accepted by the mainstream because increasingly they are the mainstream. It's just the math. We've discussed the growth in uh, population, growth in uh, income earners, growth obviously in business creators. Let's talk about some policies. Federal Reserve, lower interest rates. This cost and availability of capital, crucial. How, how important is that now? I think for the entrepreneur class, I'm not sure it makes any difference, Okay. to be quite frank. You know, it's the big companies that have big debt loads and, and all that, and I've run big companies, so I always appreciate, <laughs> you know, low interest rates, right? I mean, it's just part of, you know, how you think about calculating free cash flow. But these individuals, you know, the interest rates that they're paying is much different. Than, they're high anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, whether it's 8% or 7% is not going to make a big difference. But for a big company that has billions of dollars, I mean, it's a lot of cash. Minimum wage laws. I think minimum wage, you know, it's, it's kind of on the one hand and on the other hand. I think people need to learn that keeping workers and not retraining workers every three months, which now some of the cycle times look like that, you know, smaller companies are keeping workers for three months and then having to retrain, including big employers uh, that have, you know, lower wage employees. I think you always have to do that calculation. If I have a churn of employees that come and work for three months and then they leave because they're not making enough money versus- they get better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. Or I can, you know, stabilize my workplace, which means better service, which means lower training costs, which means a lot of other things. Everybody has to do that calculation. I do think minimum wage has to be higher, my personal view. When I read about, you know, $8, $10 minimum wage in today's economy, I don't know how else 
people can make it other than working two or three jobs. And there is one cohort that tends to work two or three jobs in order to make it rather than go on welfare and other things. And that is the Latino cohort. Now, on immigration, you've, you've made the point. Uh, it's been uh, tainted by the idea everyone's swarming across borders. People, many don't realize they're not from Mexico. They're mostly from violent, torn countries in uh, Central America. But if you look at the need for legal immigration, clearly uh, we need legal immigrants. We absorb them better than any other country in the world over time. Second generation, same as any other American. Even if they're proud of their past, they're very American. And uh, so what kind of reform do you see ideally coming in the future? Is it more merit-based or is it, uh, I believe too, you have to allow for people who may not have much but have the desire to get ahead. You want that kind of energy. What kind of reform do you see ideally coming, either piecemeal or as a package? How, how, how do we get the best of it? Well, well, I think, first of all, people have a misperception of we have a problem, okay? And I think we have a process problem in terms of what's been happening. We need workers and not just, you know, double PhDs that are going to work at Google and Apple and a H1 few other B places. Visas. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, that is so naive when you look at how an economy works. An economy is an ecosystem, and it has many layers of people. If you look at the housing and construction. And by the way, on housing, Latinos are buying housing more proportionately than anyone else. <laughs> exactly. That's 13% of the economy, okay? 13%. And right now, uh, and there's just a story out last week about all these states where they can't grow because there's nobody to hire. They can't build, housing numbers are down, all that sort of thing. Because we have some silly, naive thinking that's not business-based in terms of how we grow an economy. So, so how do we deal with it? Number one, I'm a believer in a sovereign nation. Number two, I believe that when we have a lot of people that have come here looking for work to make a better life, which most do, and their visas expire, and it takes 13 years to get a, a renewal of their visa, there's a process problem. It's an IT problem. So we need to fix the IT part of this so, so that those we can, who obey the rules don't get punished. Exactly. And there's a lot of people that are sitting here that we so-called call, you know, illegal. I call them undocumented because the system has abandoned any kind of efficiency. So let's fix that problem. The sovereign side of, of national security and all that, we have plenty of technology. We have border sites. We see that most of the problems of bad stuff happening comes through the actual sites. We need better technology. We need better investment there. And yes, maybe we need more, more border patrol kind of people. But the big volume numbers and you know the millions are a process, predominantly a process issue. And that we can fix by deciding on the number of people that we're going to allow from every country, whatever it might be. We've had a quota system for a number of years. And so now we have to size it based upon the kind of workers that we need. We have 7 million unfilled jobs in the country today, based on most, and about 2,000 might be associated with double PhDs. The rest are in every sector of our economy, including healthcare. And when I say healthcare, it doesn't just mean the people that care for elderly, et cetera. These are doctors, nurses, researchers. technicians, researchers, all that. And we're finding out there's a, 
a few problems with this move to Kansas City for whatever reason it was with the FDA. I mean, it, we're acting not based on economic interests. We're not acting based upon the values of our country that they were founded upon. We've come up with some, I call them silly thoughts that might be political, might be some people call them racist, some people call them whatever they want to call them, but they're not market-based. They're not long-term thinking about how we keep sustaining this great country, this great machine we have of capitalism. They, you know, and capitalism works 92, 93% of the time. And yes, 7 or 8% of the time it doesn't. But, because but, we're human. Yeah, and we can build mechanisms for the 7 or 8%. Saul, so you uh, once said more. Always strive for more, bigger, and always look what you're going to do next. And finally, what can I do better? You've done well today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Steve. This has been great. And now, my reads of the week. The first one, how the myth of the robber barons began and why it persists. You can find it on fee.org. That's F-E-E dot org. It's written by Professor Burton Folsom, F-O-L-S-O-M. Folsom takes to task the myth that the entrepreneurs of the late 1800s were called robber barons, that they were rapacious plunderers, they built the public, they corrupted political and economic life. Historians call it the Gilded Age. The truth is, most of these individuals were great builders, organizers, helped turn America from an agrarian country into the mightiest industrial nation on earth. Folsom makes a distinction between what he calls political entrepreneurs, those who did depend on government subsidies and handouts, and by golly, they were robber barons. They didn't do very much except corrupt, but they are in stark contrast to what Folsom calls the market entrepreneurs, people like Cornelius Vanderbilt and Hill and others who built great railroads, great enterprises, the kinds of things that turned America into a great nation. Now, the second piece. This will look like a little pat on the back, but hey, I can't resist. It's a piece I wrote for foxnews.com called Pelosi's Medicare for All Strategy Looks Like a Big Wooden Horse. Yes, a Trojan horse. Nancy Pelosi, very cleverly, is working with Republicans in the White House and in Congress to come up with looks like a compromised short-term health care bill, but it has provisions that'll take more and more steps to a system of one-size-fits-all. The Republicans and others should be aware of this. Nancy Pelosi knows proposing Medicare for All at the start is not going to work. It's not going to pass, but you do it step by step, and you can achieve ultimately the same goal. I just wish she was on the Republican side. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.